name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain View. I serve as executive pastor, and I've been doing that for a while, and I'm grateful to be uh, here back at Sunnyside with you for the first service. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be there in chapter 10. We're continuing this series called Transform, and we're talking about mental transformation, and we're going to start with a little video with a little testimony about how God transforms lives. So let's take a look at that. Hello, my name is Alvin Batiste. I grew up in Berkeley, California. I suffered through agoraphobia for 13 years. There was times where I couldn't got go nowhere. I would stand in the house, family or friends would come over, ask me to go somewhere. I couldn't even go. Too scared. I suffered through panic disorder. I couldn't even get on elevators. I couldn't even go out of town. There was times where I wanted to take my family on road trips. We couldn't even go, suffering through panic disorder. But through my panic disorder, I had someone by my side that always told me that you can make it, and it was my wife. She was my rock. But through it all, who helped me was Jesus. Jesus was my rock. There was times when my wife would leave to go to work. I would be in the house, I would just pray. Pray, pray, pray. Sometimes I felt like I wouldn't get through. But it was times where I kept praying and asking the Lord just to move in my life. So one morning I woke up, about three o'clock, and I tapped my wife, I said, honey, something come over me. My wife looked at me like, what do you mean? I told my wife, I said, hey, babe, look, let's get up and try to go to the Bay Area, back to Berkeley, California, where I grew up. And my wife was just like, no, honey, I don't think you can get on the freeway and make it. I said, baby, trust me. I felt something in my spirit that's telling me I can do it. So I got up that morning, told my wife and my children, let's take a road trip. So we got up, and through the road trip, I prayed. And all I can hear is Jesus telling me, son, I'm with you, I got you. But through my panic, it was times where I had to stop, I had to pull over. But through that, I still understood that Jesus was steady telling me, son, go forth, you can do it. And I finally made it to Berkeley, California. And it's been almost 12 or 13 years. I haven't seen my grandmother in a long time. Couldn't even make it to my mother's funeral. But I thank the Lord through prayer and believing in Jesus, that you can make it. But you have to believe and keep the faith. The Lord will see you through. My name is Alvin, and my agoraphobia was no problem for my king. That is awesome. What a great story. There's a power that Jesus has to transform lives that's uh, unlike any other, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, a little bit today. We're continuing this series, Transform, and like I said, talking about mental transformation. And it's part of uh, the many aspects of our lives that God transforms when we become Christians and as we continue to walk with Jesus. If you've become a Christian, you know that there were some changes that happened when you became a Christian, right? I trust that you experienced the relief of forgiveness from sin that experience of being forgiven and knowing the love of God. And yet there's many more things that God wants to transform in our lives. That process is going to continue throughout our lives as Christians. And it's complicated because we're complicated, right? Hopefully you figure that out about yourself. You're a complicated person. That's okay. The Bible says you're complicated. In Psalm 138 and 139, Jesus, uh, the Lord talks about the fact that we're made wonderfully complex is the phrase that's used in the New Living Translation that we use. So, you're wonderfully complex. 
right? If you're married, sometimes you might have to tell your spouse once in a while when you're disagreeing about something and just remind them, you know what? I am wonderfully complex. Yes. <laughs> sometimes we don't even understand ourselves, and that's okay. God's created us with all these different aspects, emotional, mental, spiritual, and they all fit together. And so what I'm talking about today, this mental transformation, isn't disconnected at all from what Pastor Ken talked about last week with regards to emotional transformation, right? These things all fit together as part of a piece, and so I encourage you to think about all the messages that you hear through this series and how they fit together in your own life. But let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read there, make a few comments, and then we'll explore a few other passages today. Uh, 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with your Bible, I'm just going to encourage you to go to your index at the front of your Bible, and uh, you're going to find 2 Corinthians in the front of your Bible in the New Testament. Um, I'm a little blinder than Ken. Is there any possibility for me to get more light up here? If not, it's no problem. I'm just going to stretch my arm out. But anyways, here we go. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through verse 7. It says, Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from far away. Well... I'm begging you now so that when I come to you, I won't have to be bold with those who think that we act from human motives. And let me stop just with those couple of verses and make some comments, all right? So it's the Apostle Paul speaking, and he's writing a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, right? So the group that he's addressing is not an individual, it's actually a church family, right? And he says, I'm Paul, just to remind you guys who I am. And he's sort of appealing to his authority because Paul was an apostle and he had established this church and did have some authority over them. But he says, I'm appealing with gentleness and kindness, the exactly the way that Jesus approached you. He says, though I realize you think that I'm timid in person and bold only when I write. And of course, he's writing a letter, right? And he's saying, I know there's this reputation that I have, and there were some people in that church who were critical of Paul and suggested that that was what he was like, right? That he was tough talk in his letters, but then when he would show up, he'd be a wuss. He's like, I don't realize that you think that. But he says, look, I'm talking tough. I'm trying to assert the importance of the issue in a letter so that when I come, I don't have to talk tough with you. So that when we get together and I'm there... It can be joyful and we can be in agreement. Let's sort out our disagreements even before I get there so that we can have good fellowship together is kind of what he's getting at. And at the end he says, I'm bold, but we're not just acting with human motives the way some people think we are. And he's again talking about his group of apostles and they're being challenged as being basically just selfish people who are out for their own ends by some false teachers who are influencing the church. That's the first couple of verses, and now I'm going to read some verses that typically are the ones that we sort of lift out of this passage and quote because they're kind of immediately applicable to our own lives, and they certainly have to do with transforming of the mind. But it's good for us to see the context of where these verses come from. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe they're going to sound familiar to you. From verse 3, he says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. 
We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. You ever heard those verses before? Right? He's talking about the world of the mind, and he's talking about how we wage war, he says. As an apostle, he's speaking. He's speaking as a Christian. He's speaking as someone who ministers and serves others. He says, we wage a war of ideas. And ideas are in the mind, right? And so that's where the battleground is. He says it's not human weapons that we're using. We're using spiritual weapons. And the weapon chiefly that he's using is the gospel message, right? Because his purpose is there, he says, I want people to know God and I want them to become obedient to Christ. That's the goal of the battle. That's what the weapons are supposed to produce in victory, people who know God and are obedient to Him. Well, that's a way of talking about a Christian, someone who's actually embraced the gospel message, right? And you know, if you've wrestled with the gospel yourself, which is this message that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that He was born on this earth miraculously of a virgin, never sinned during His whole life, preached an amazing message, did amazing miracles, then died on the cross, not just for Himself, not to sort of prove something, but to have our sins forgiven, to take them upon Himself and to pay the price so that we can, as that song Jailbreak says, we can be set free. And then was miraculously raised to new life to vindicate the fact, right, that He had died for our sins and He was sinless, is resurrected, and then ascends into heaven. That's the gospel message. It's a message about Jesus and who He is, and it ends with a call for response, right, because any presentation of the gospel requires, in the end, that an invitation is given to make a decision to receive that gospel and actually be transformed. That's the primary weapons and battle of thinking that the Apostle Paul's talking about here. He says, we destroy arguments that set themselves up against the gospel message. You might think of an argument that's an argument of self-help. Well, it's great that Jesus did all those things, but, you know, if I'm going to change my life, it's really up to me. That would be exactly the kind of false argument that Paul would say, that is what we battle against, and say, no, no, it's not up to you. You can't do anything. Jesus has done it for us. So, he wants to see people know God. He wants to see them become obedient to Christ. Sometimes we take these verses and immediately just apply them to our own minds, like I'm going to take my thoughts captive and I'm going to make my thoughts obedient to Christ. That's not a bad idea. You definitely should be cognizant of how you're thinking and what you're thinking and work at being disciplined in your thinking. And I think that that's a secondary application of this passage, but primarily that's not what it's talking about, just sort of your personal life, right? It's talking about our corporate mission as Christians to share the gospel and convince people that it's in fact true. The last verse then says this, verse 6, and after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. That's a great verse. We don't quote that one for ourselves so much, <laughs> right? It says, after we've battled for the gospel and we've drawn people into relationship with the Lord and helped them become obedient to Christ, then he says, anybody who remains disobedient will be punished. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he says, look, we're going to come and we're going to clarify the issues when I get there as an apostle. And he's talking again to the church, right? 
We're going to get ourselves in line as a church again over the priorities of what God's doing in the world. And once we've all clarified that, we're on the same page. Anybody who's not on the same page, they're out. (laughs) And Paul has a unique authority to do that as an apostle. He's the one who's established the church. He's been commissioned by Jesus Christ Himself to preach that gospel. And so if someone wants to be inside the church in Corinth and struggle and fight with Paul about what the gospel is, Paul says, that's not going to happen. There's one gospel. I'm going to make it clear. Anybody who's not on page with us is out. Well, that's a tough word, right? And he's not kicking out like non-Christians. He's always gracious and compassionate with them. But he's talking about someone who identifies and says, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't agree with what the Apostle Paul says. Paul's like, not an option. I represent Jesus Christ. And our attitude is meant to be the same, right? We submit not to the Apostle Paul because he doesn't show up. It would be awesome if he came once in a while, wouldn't it? You could say, hey, Paul, could you ask, answer some questions that I've got about something that you wrote? That would be great. What we have is we have what he, is what he wrote. And so, how do we submit? How do we do that as a church? We submit to the Word of God. That's our authority, right? We honor what it says. We respect what it says. We submit to what it says. We seek to be obedient together to what it says and to remain faithful to the Lord. So, a couple of points that go out of this passage and then beyond into some other uh, verses that are relevant to what we're talking about today. Number one, the world of our thoughts is a battleground, right? The world of thinking and ideas is a place where battles are won and lost. The primary one, like I said, is that gospel battle. And when that gospel battle is won and a person embraces it, that's when you become a Christian, right? And there's victory, and there's a sense of release and breaking from jail, shackles falling off. As that battle is won and we embrace what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we stop trying to earn salvation. Then Jesus takes us along, and we continue to transform and change through changing our thinking. Right? That battleground happens at a variety of levels. The, the battleground of salvation is a very personal thing, right? An individual, you have to make a decision to follow Jesus. Nobody else can make that for you. That's a personal battleground where you have to wage. Maybe that's where you're at today and struggling to figure that out. That's awesome. I'm so glad you're here. We continue to have personal fights about how we think, right? Here's, here's an idea that you have to wrestle with, right? It's a common idea, right? I'll be happy when blank. Just that thought. Have you ever thought that thought? I'll be happy when... And you just fill in whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy down the road when something in the future happens. Sounds like an okay idea. You know, I'll be happy when I finish school. I'll be happy when I get a better job. I'll be happy when I meet someone, whatever. But that's not actually a gospel thought, right? We can have those kinds of ideas corporately. Even how we think about church, you know. Uh, I want a church that blank. How about that idea? Have you ever had that idea? You know, I'd really like a church that blank. And it's kind of this looking forward to happiness. If this would just work out, then I'd be satisfied. Seems like that might be a reasonable request. And when you have to look for a a new church home because you've moved or something like that, you do have to ask, well, what am I looking for, right? But that idea on its own is not a good idea. It's a selfish-focused idea. We'll talk about it in the next point, how to think about rightly. 
We culturally can have big ideas that transcend certainly us individually and us as a church and that we're just immersed in as a culture, right? Right? Our, our news is just obsessed with politics, right? And we can easily develop the idea like, you know, oh, if only politicians would blank. You fill in whatever. If only politicians would do this, then it would be figured out. Then things would be better, right? So our culture often talks, and we can absorb those thoughts into our own thinking. But the second point answers that. Part of the process of becoming a new person in Christ involves changing how we think, right? As we grow as Christians, we change our ways of thinking, and that's a transformation process. Romans 12, 2 is the classic verse. Pastor Ken talked about it last week. I've just got it for you there. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, right? Transformation is a change in way of thinking. So let's just apply that idea to those three ideas that I was talking about before. First was the personal one, right? I'll be happy when blank. That's not a gospel thought. The gospel thought is I'm made new in Christ. I'm a new creation. Already happened, right? The best thing that could ever happen to me, the only thing that could truly make me happy in this life has already happened in Christ. And now I am in Christ and remain in that. And now I need to change the way I think to accept this peace and happiness and security that's in Christ. It's already mine, but in a way I need to change my thinking in order to accept this new gift that I've been given, that you've been given. Corporately, right? Instead of thinking first about, you know, this is what a church needs to be for me, I'm a part of the body of Christ. There's a gospel idea. I've been made new in Christ, and now the Bible says I am a part of the body of Christ. I'm a part of a community. Whether that community is exactly the way I would like it to be is irrelevant. I'm not exactly like I would like me to be, and so that community, by the same logic, could say, you know what, when you get your act together, then you can join us. You would want a place like that. Why would we project that upon a church? Right? But if we say to ourselves, you know what, we're part of the body of Christ. The expression that I'm in is the expression called Sunnyside. And accept that, that change of thinking will change a lot of things in our lives. Culturally speaking, right, the idea was if only politicians would. Instead, we're invited to acknowledge that God's the Lord of all things and pray a simple prayer, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine if every stressful political thought you thought, <laughs> you turned into that prayer. No, actually the Lord's in charge, and our concern is for His kingdom first. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get involved in politics or care, but that happens underneath your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the real source for powerful change, even in our culture. Next, Jesus does the actual transforming, right? In case you don't notice in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, let God transform. It's easy to kind of walk away from a verse like that and say, okay, I need to get at it. I need to start changing the way I think. And yes, there is a part to play. We'll talk about that in the next verse. But primarily, mental transformation happens at God's hand. Right? He's the one 
who does the work. And I just offer one verse that's a very powerful verse that talks about that. It's from Luke chapter 24, verse 45. It says, then he, and this is talking about Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's with the apostles, and he's teaching them that all the Scriptures point to him. And he's trying to explain that. And the disciples have always had a struggle understanding everything that Jesus was saying to them, right? And it's very understandable if you put yourself in their shoes and see through their eyes what they heard and what they saw and forget what you know about the rest of the Bible, you know, your head would go too. You would just be like, what is happening? And they're struggling to understand this, the resurrected Jesus telling them that all the Bible points to them. And then there's this amazing line. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus can open your mind to understand the Scriptures. Nobody else can do that, right? You cannot open your own mind. You can read books and consider new ideas and have conversations, and that's awesome, right? That cultivates something good in your life. But you cannot open your own mind, but Jesus can open your mind. He can do a supernatural work to help you understand who He is and to open up the Word of God. We'll have opportunity to pray at the end of the service. And that may be something that you need to come and ask someone to pray with you. Ask Jesus to open your minds so that you can understand His Word in a new way and see how it all relates to Him. I said that we participate some in the process. God begins, right? But He invites us to be a part of it, and we do. We do it in a variety of ways. One is by meditating on the truth. We participate in our mental transformation by meditating on the truth. You've got a great verse here, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Isn't that great? Right? Think about those things. And by logical extension, right, don't think about things that are untrue, dishonorable, not right, impure, right, unlovely, not admirable. Push those things aside and start to focus on the things that are those. And I don't need to tell you what that is. It just takes you a minute to think right away about the list that actually fits under that first category. And it doesn't take you very long to figure out what the list is of the junks that's in the other category. And that's a responsibility of ours, to choose to meditate on things that are good and right and pure and lovely and not to meditate on those things that aren't. A couple of ways that we meditate on the things that are. One is through prayer. And it, I, I don't mean simply by sort of asking uh, God to, to do that for us. That is part of what we do. We ask Jesus to come and open our minds to understand the Scriptures, right? That's a prayer for this promise in Philippians to actually come true and come to pass. I'm thinking about how we, just the act of praying though, when we sort of articulate our thoughts and we talk to God, right? Have you ever prayed and talked to God and as you're praying, you're realizing, you know, what I'm asking for, this is not good. This doesn't make any sense. This is actually pretty selfish. Lord, let me just kind of backtrack, forget about that. Let me take a new approach on how I'm talking to you. Has that ever happened to you, right? It's like a kid, you know, who needs to lie to their parents and they, they weave a story 
and they think, man, this lie sounds so good, it's totally going to convince my parents. Have you ever, did you ever try and do that when you were a kid? And then you get in front of your parents, and then you actually say it, and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're thinking, wow, this is so dumb. Why did I think that this was a good lie? <laughs> and of course, the parents see through it right away, right? It's sort of like that. It's ideas that are in our minds that seem good. A lot of times when they come out of our mouth, they're exposed as foolish. And that's a great thing about prayer is we talk to the Lord, you know, and some of our dumb ideas <laughs> about what God should do and how we should ask, they get articulated and as we hear them, oh yeah, I, need to, I don't want to be like that, I need to change that. So that's part of how we learn and grow in our mind is transformed is simply by articulating our hearts to the Lord. So much better than pretending like we can sort of hide something from God and get our sort of our prayer act together before we pray. It's, right? It doesn't make any sense. God knows everything that you're thinking anyways. He knows your true motive, so you might as well confess it and then let God change how you think. It's one of the ways. Secondly, obviously, is in Bible reading. And you guys got Shape Journal. We've got the new start tomorrow, new bright orange bookmark beginning the last quarter of the year, I just want to challenge you again, read the Word of God. There is no person you know whose mind has been transformed and is genuinely Christ-like and who you admire because of their transformed mind and their spiritual life. There is not a single person like that that you know who has not spent years regularly reading Scripture. It simply does not happen. There is no path around that. It comes through cultivating a daily awareness of how God thinks by reading His Word. And so I want to encourage you to use that as a motivation to open up Scriptures each day. Use that reading bookmark and read. There's nothing supernatural about the sequence of reading that we're doing. It's just organized in a way that's simple for you to remember, and it's really fun to do it together as a church. And now you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are reading the same Scripture that day and getting something out of it. And it builds our relationships together as a church as well. So I encourage you in that. Last point there is that the fruit of mental transformation is a whole new life, right? It's good for us to be reminded, why would we make this investment to try and allow Jesus to transform our minds, right? Want to even have that happen and then pursue this lifestyle of meditating on what's good and rejecting what's not. Why would we do all that? At least one of the amazing fruit that you should keep out as a vision, as a hope for the future, and maybe you even experience a little bit of it today, comes from this promise in Romans 8, verse 6. It says this, letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Really simple phrase, right? Letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. The Spirit-controlled mind is the mind that's obedient to Christ. Do you remember that phrase that the Apostle Paul used in 2 Corinthians? Our goal, he says, is we want to make sure people know God and that they become obedient to Christ. Another way of saying that is a mind that's controlled by the Spirit because it would make sense that that mind would be obedient to Christ in every circumstance, right? So Paul says that mind that's obedient to Christ, that's being controlled by the Spirit, it leads to life and it leads to peace. Think about that, right? Life and peace up here. Doesn't that sound good? A peaceful mind, a mind that's just like, I'm at rest. I'm content. My mind is not racing. Group like this, there's a bunch of you, you never experienced that. You can't remember the last time your mind wasn't churning with something, right? He's talking about a mind that's at rest, 
content with silence. Doesn't that sound good? I hope that sounds good to you. (laughs) That sounds great to me. I love that. A mind that's experienced life and peace. Who knows what God can do when our minds are like that? Let me give you a few application points for a couple minutes here, and then I invite the worship team to come on up, and we'll have a time of prayer again. There'll be some folks that can pray on the side. You can come and kneel at the front. We want to actually apply, obviously, these things to our lives. And I'm going to talk about three quick things, and, and they're going to become increasingly awkward, okay? And that's okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit awkward in church. There's nothing that's taboo for us to not talk about, right? Being awkward's fine. We don't want to avoid uh, anything. We talk about real life as a church family. So I'll start with an easy one. It's what the guy was talking about there, right? He had a fear of leaving his home, but just that topic of fear, right? A mind that's worried and afraid all the time. That's a very common thing for our minds to be consumed with that. You might have spent most of this sermon for the last 20 minutes wrestling back and forth between trying to pay attention and worrying about something and being afraid about some circumstance. That's not a mind experiencing life and peace. Jesus is happy to help set us free from fear. And now that doesn't happen one day and you just get zapped and you never have a fear again, right? But slowly over time, as you give your fears over to Jesus, He increasingly sets you free so that as the years go by, you're fearful less about less and less things, and you worry about less and less things, and you're more content in Christ. Maybe you need to come and pray with someone and just say, this is me, this is what I struggle with. I'd like to experience the freedom of Christ in that. I encourage you to come and pray and experience that. Second is addiction. A very common thing for us to struggle with is addictions, right? And addictions aren't exclusively a mental issue, but clearly that's a part of the issue when we struggle with an addiction is how we're thinking, right? And any good counselor is going to tell you that. So I'm not talking in a vacuum, like if you just change how you think about this, boom, your addiction goes away. I'm saying this is part of the experience of freedom is changing the way we think. It's a really interesting secular book written years ago called Drinking a Love Story. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has ever read it. It's a fascinating... I, I have been involved in recovery ministry for years, and I always enjoyed reading biographies just to try and help understand how people who were trapped in an addiction for a long time, you know, how'd you get there? How'd you stay there? What's going on in your mind? And uh, this title is, you caught my eye right away, of course, right? It's Drinking, a Love Story. And this lady writes about, like, I, you know, I loved alcohol. Like, I loved drinking. I loved what it did to me, how it changed me as a person, and consequently, it took her a long time to see the dark side and a long time for her to get free. But she does sort of some math, some equations uh, that justified for her the power of drinking. I'll give you just a couple. She said, pain plus alcohol equals escape for her. She says, when I had, was hurting, when I would drink, all my hurts would disappear. I could just totally escape and leave all the hassles of my life. It was great. She said, I always had to come back to it, but at least for a while I was free. She said, repression plus alcohol equaled openness for her. She said, I repressed hurt in the past. I couldn't talk about anything. You got me drinking. Oh, I can totally be open and just share everything. Get it off my chest, and that felt good. Fear plus alcohol for her equaled bravery. (laughs) She said, I was so scared in social situations. Give me a couple of drinks, and I'm like... Miscongeniality. I could just talk with everybody and be, be totally brave and fearless. 
And feeling, experiencing all those benefits of alcohol made it incredibly hard for her to get free, but eventually she did. And she developed some other math equations that were based more on reality and helped change her way of thinking about that. Maybe you need to come and just pray with someone about an addiction challenge. Don't worry, nobody's taping addiction on the back of your shirts to see what you're coming up for prayer for. You're just coming up to pray, right? There's nothing taboo. We all struggle with stuff like that, so I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into that situation. Lastly is gender dysphoria. See, we're getting more and more awkward, right? Very common in our culture, right, to talk about, like, this is this issue of I'm trapped in a body that I don't believe is mine in terms of its, its gender. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm experiencing confusion about whether I'm a man or a woman in my mind, even though my physical body tells me what I am. That's not exclusively a mental issue either, but clearly there's a battle going on in the mind. And there's some powerful truths in Scripture that help us work towards freedom even around something like gender dysphoria. The book of Genesis chapter 1 describes our creation. It says this in verse 27, God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God created us as male and female, and we reflect the image of God through how He's created us, including through our sexuality. That's an amazing thing. That's a gift from God. And believing that that's actually true, that God has created me in His image, and that my maleness my femaleness, my sexuality is a part of that reflected image of God can move me towards acceptance, right? Accepting the way God has in fact made me, that there is no mistake in that. Maybe you need to come and pray for that, right? It's just awkward, that's all. It's not taboo. Just come and pray. There's nothing that we can't invite Jesus into that He can't transform. Invite the worship team to come on up, invite you to stand. I'm going to sing a song to conclude. There'll be some prayer ushers on the side. I want to encourage you to take advantage of them. Let's allow Jesus to do that transforming work in our minds. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the fact that You do a transforming work in us at salvation. We thank You for the message of the gospel and how it really begins a total change in our lives. And we thank You for the mental aspect of that change. We ask that You come right now by Your Spirit. And come and do that work. Open up our hearts to respond to you. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We want to be people who continue to be transformed together as a church body into your image, to be obedient to you. Thank you for the gracious and merciful way that you